We're excited to be able to continue our study of the Psalms of Ascents this morning. Uh, this morning. Um, the Songs for the Journey. As ancient Israel would ascend to Jerusalem uh, annually for the great feasts, they would use these Psalms as they went on that journey to help them in their journey to, uh, toward the Lord. And as many believers have been continuing to use these Psalms of Ascents over the years in their path of discipleship, we're using them as songs for the journey of our path towards growth in the Lord, uh, moving from where we find ourselves today to that place where we are uh, seeing the kingdom of God come in its fullness. We looked at Psalm 120 to start this uh, series, and Psalm 120 expressed the idea uh, that when we start our journey, we start with a restlessness, and we start by having a holy agitation about the problems that we face and the needs that we have, and we look to God for His solution and His work of grace. Psalm 121 reminded us that we're not exempt from trouble and difficulty in this world, but that as we are on this journey, uh, God is our guardian that is greater than any trial. The Psalms, that we, as we've, we're seeing them, and we'll see that today, look square in the face of the difficulty and the trouble that we face in this world and look to God for His presence and His work in and through those troubles and difficulties to bring about His work of salvation and grace and to redeem us and to redeem all things. This Psalm gives us some new language to use in our journey. The psalm uses two phrases that, we're gonna, uh, that are part of the heart of the psalm and its complaint. The phrases are, uh, the words are contempt and scorn, and they express uh, the deep woundedness that we experience as human beings. And the perspective of the psalm gives us a fresh way to see what I think our culture has been experiencing over this past month. Contempt is a way of treating other people without dignity or without worth. When someone's value is demeaned, when we make them feel small, contempt is being conveyed. We are showing contempt when we uh, disobey the laws and structures that are established. That's another way that contempt is used. Um, and we, uh, when we do so, we're uh, pretty much saying they're not worth keeping or they're not worth attending to. So much is taking place in our own country right now where many are expressing their long experience of contempt and are pouring out the weight of what they have been feeling of being treated unfairly, treated unevenly, that their rights have been stepped on. And they are crying out, we have had enough of contempt. Others see how many in this country have reacted or have expressed this great cry and, uh, and have contempt for uh, and see that they might have contempt for the law and the key structures of our society. And the result is that we have produced, we've seen produced in our midst an incredibly divided America where contempt reigns. Contempt that breeds more contempt. Scorn, which just simply multiplies. This psalm is a servant song. And it gives us a fresh perspective on who we are and how we are to uh, combat the issue of scorn and contempt. As a servant song, the key idea that this psalm presents to us is that it calls us to see ourselves as servants of a merciful master who helps us in the journey of a life full of contempt. 
The psalm wants us to see ourselves as servants of a merciful master who helps us in this journey in a life full of contempt. The first thing this psalm calls us to is to see God as master. Difficult metaphor uh, that master and servant may be in the context of the current public conversation. It's a critical and often used phrase in Scripture that helps us to teach, to teach us how we are to see God and relate to Him. Verse 1 describes God as enthroned in the heavens. The use of the phrase is not pretty much trying to say uh, this is the geography, and as we lift our eyes up to that God enthroned in the heavens, it's not that that's where He resides. It's really communicating more of the concept of His supremacy, of His being in the position of authority, the, the position of ruling and controlling all things. It makes a sharp distinction between the creature and the creator. God is the one in the heavens, and we are limited in our perspective and in our insight. We lift our eyes up to God because He is full of more power, more insight, more wisdom, uh, more perspective as He rules over all. He's described in verse 2 as master. He is in charge. He runs the world and all of its creatures. All depend upon him for our purpose, for our life, and for our direction. In contrast, we're described as servants. God has a plan and a purpose for us as his creatures, his servants, and we're to follow those directives and those commands in order to live life as he designed it. You know, this is really hard for us as Americans we are fierce, fierce individualists. As we celebrate our independence weekend, um, we know that one of the great slogans of the independence movement was, we serve no sovereign here. If this concept runs counter, uh, the idea of God being a master and we being servants runs counter to our whole cultural mindset. But let's hear the scriptures as they continually weave together a perspective on who God is that is intended to, to cure the ills that we face in this world. Isaiah 55 puts it this way. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It tells us that God is infinitely greater and wiser and above all of the limit, limitedness that we experience in this life. And we, on the other hand, are limited short-sighted, unable to see the full picture of things. God's ways are not always visible to us. His thoughts, his reasons, his purposes beyond our full comprehension. God is master. Isaiah 45 states it this way, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? God is our maker as our master. He's the one who's in the position to know how we're designed, how we're shaped, how this world is created and intended to live. God's not our servant. We are his. We are his creatures, shaped by him, designed by him, uh, put together in his image. We bear uh, the marks of his created design and purpose. We have no place to tell him the way things are supposed to be. Psalm 115 is a fascinating psalm as it contrasts who God is to idolatry. Idols in the ancient world were things you bargained with, 
When you went to an idol, you pretty much did your sacrifice or your uh, way of presenting your offering to that idol as a way of doing a transaction. I do this, so you, God, owe me this. As people went to see seers, they would provide income for those seers. They'd provide the payment. And the expectation was, you're supposed to give me the answer that I paid you to give me. The contrast in Psalm 115 is startling. There it says, but God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is not to be bought. He is not to be bargained with. He is not one that we can control by our manipulations or by even our strong wishes. Whenever we use the phrase, I can't believe in a God like blank, whatever the problem that we have with the way that God seems to be to us or with us at the particular time, reverses the order of the way things are in God's created economy. We put ourselves in God's sovereign place. We end up judging God based on our image rather than we the image bearers, letting God be God and knowing that we are limited in our wisdom and perspective. We can't bargain with God. We can't know why and what he does and how he does it at all times. And we as creatures are in no place to stand as his judge. The book of Job is so powerful in God's uh, work with him. He wrestled deeply in the terrible loss and affliction. All of his children killed off. His flocks and all of his employees are killed and gone. His means of economic livelihood taken away. He is full of sores and pain and uh, illness. And yet, uh, what comfort did God give him? A wife and a bunch of friends who do nothing but discourage him. God allows this, and yet he does so without explanation, without encouragement. And Job wrestles deeply with God. God doesn't put him down for that, but what he does is he shows him ultimately that God is the one in control. He is the one that is sovereign over all things. His purpose is beyond finding out. And Job comes to the place where he comprehends finally, and he's thankful for being able to gain the perspective of God is master. God is sovereign. God is the one um, with whom uh, we have to do however he relates to us and whatever he brings our way. But the other side of this is how does this psalm portray God? He is master, but what kind of master is, it? is he? He's sovereign. He's free from our whims and desires, but he is a good master. Jesus teaches us to address God as Father, and at the same time as we know that Lord's Prayer, we say, our Father, who art in heaven, the one in, in authority, in the place of sovereignty, in the place of control. And we go on to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know that he knows what uh, the design and shape and ultimate destiny of ourselves in this world is to be. And we're to align our wills with his will. God is master, but he's a good master. And so Jesus tells, teaches us to address him as father because God is near. He hears the concerns and cries of our hearts. And so we are also called to, in that prayer, bring our requests before him. We seek God's will and his purpose because he's master, but we know that he is a fatherly, loving, caring master. We hate the concept of servanthood as Americans, but as Bob Dylan puts it, you got to serve somebody. 
And uh, we either either living for ourselves or for someone or something that we seek to give us life. But the sad truth about that is that there is no real independence. We aren't really totally free when we give ourselves over to a, a, a different master. And the sad truth that we find often is that what we give ourselves to ends up putting us in a place of bondage. So this psalm is clear. God is a good master. We are to be those who wait on him even though we don't understand what he's doing or why he's doing it. We look to him for mercy because we see ourselves as servants who are broken and needy. That's the psalmist's great confidence that we can look to God because he's good as our master and he will bring mercy. So firstly, we need to have that perspective of God as master. But secondly, we are to have a perspective on ourselves as freed servants. The image of slavery, it does shock our sensibilities, yet the scriptures remind us again and again of our story as it presents the good, good news of the gospel to us. We were in bondage to sin until Jesus came and worked to free us. We were powerless. We were addicted. We were stuck. The Bible puts it so strongly in Ephesians chapter 2 that it describes us as those who are dead in our trespasses and sins. The picture of being dead uh, puts to us the idea that we are powerless. We have no uh, capacity. We have no agency to do anything to take ourselves out of deadness. We're lifeless. We've got no power. We've got no strength. But that's the picture of our bondage uh, when we are uh, described as those uh, who are sinners, broken people. We've given ourselves over to another master, and that master has left us without life. We've gone for pleasure. We've pursued comfort. We've looked to money. We've looked to success. We've looked to other people and their opinions of us. Whatever the way it is that we've looked for getting life from something else or for someone else, the result is that we're become enslaved to that which we have served. The metaphor of being dead tells us that we can't get out of that place by ourselves. And the good news of the gospel is the amazing truth that God has done that release for us. He has rescued us. He's taken us from a place of bondage to a place of freedom. The freedom that Jesus accomplished is put by Paul in Romans chapter 6 as uh, the, the great truth that Jesus has, by his death and his resurrection, taken us and united us to Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And we are taught in that passage to see that new identity as one that has set us free. When Jesus unites us to himself, our sins are crucified on the cross. And when he goes to the grave, they are buried with him. Our old nature is done away with. That bondage that we were forced into a, a compulsion to continue to have has been abolished. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the work of Jesus as he's done it in our lives. And we are united to him in his resurrection. We're brought to a place of newness of life where we're set free to live the way that God designed us and made us. The amazing picture that Paul goes on to describe, because of this, we're to make sure that we believe that, that we trust that we've had our old nature crucified, that we're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what he calls us to do later in that passage is to present ourselves 
to God as slaves for righteousness, servants of righteousness. The biblical perspective on, on, on servanthood is willing submission. We've been set free from a bondage, but what Romans 6 encourages us to do is to willingly give ourselves in bondage to a good master, a merciful master, the one who set us free from the bondage which is destroying us and put us in a place where we're experiencing newness of life, where there's wholeness, where things are being put back together, things are healed and mended. Faith is a life of willing submission to a merciful master. It's a life of trusting dependence in the God that knows the way of life and is calling us into it. And he's united us to Christ so that it is assured that it will come true. It's from this stance toward God as willing servants, willing servants of a, of a merciful master that we're ready to deal with the problems that we face. Contempt and scorn is the way that the psalmist is describing the problem that we face, the key issue. The message version by Eugene Peterson gives us a, a wonderful insight into uh, how contempt really works in us. So listen to how Peterson puts verse 3. We've been kicked around long enough, kicked in the teeth by complacent rich men, kicked when we're down by arrogant brutes. Do you feel the edge of the prolonged experience of being kicked around, being treated as worthless, experiencing scorn and being slighted? Do you get the feel for the trajectory of what being fed up where, it, where it's going to take us. There's a festering wound that is just seething in our souls that needs to be dealt with. A wrong that requires justice. Being treated this way over and over is going to take us one of two ways and sometimes both ways. It can breed hatred and revenge because if we hold it inside, which is the other alternative, it's going to end up bursting out at some point. There's a sense of despair that can sometimes arise in us that makes us want to shut down, to give up. Often when we start by holding it in, the pressure continues to build until it bursts forth with hostility and with anger. Our reaction to contempt, uh, being wounded and mistreated uh, by others, is most often going to be expressed by returning the contempt. Whether this comes from a spouse who's hurt us, whether it comes from a brother and sister who just keeps on nagging us and won't let go, whether it's a wrong that's been done with us to us, whether it's some injustice that we've experienced that has been uh, felt over and over and over again, there's a growing pressure that just builds and builds and builds that we have to strike back. The wound that we feel, feel, we feel has to be paid for. And often, left to ourselves, that's what we're going to be about. We're going to end up hating. We're going to end up wounding. We're going to end up returning contempt with contempt. What can break the cycle of contempt in our own hearts? What can break the cycle of contempt in our own world right now? God's remedy starts with bringing our experience as servants to a willing master, 
bringing our requests to God, bringing our pain to God. As willing servants as a good master of a good master, we cry out to him. We bring to him all the scorn that we feel, all the pain that we feel, how tired we are, how much we want to give up, how much we want to strike back. We bring it to him and we plead like this psalm, be merciful, O God, be merciful. Crying out in our need and our help because we don't want the destruction to continue. And the great beauty of the psalm is that God is not afar off. He is right there as our master, ready to give that indication by his own hand of the remedy of grace, of mercy. And we know the full remedy that God has offered us is in the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return uh, to make all things new and to take away all contempt and to restore all things to the way that they should be. Jesus, for his action, came to be present in our contempt, to be present in the brokenness of our world. He experienced it himself and took that contempt to the cross where the whole contempt of the world is being hurled at him. He was scorned on the cross. He experienced the fullness of the shame and the, the minimizing and the uh, tearing down that this world has to bear in its contempt. He bore the debt that that contempt creates and he took it to the cross and in his death he died paying that, uh, experiencing that contempt and taking it away for us and for our world. His promise is that all contempt is paid for by his infinite experience of contempt in our place. And after he rose, he uh, built a new community, a new community uh, filled with the power of a, a resurrected life, a community that was transformed by the power of the resurrection. His church is called to live out a ministry of reconciliation and restoration, to work towards justice and righteousness, to put an end to contempt and injustice until he comes again when he will fully and finally accomplish what he nailed together and put together on the cross. That is why Jesus calls his followers not to repay evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. We're in the proper stance as willing services, servants of a, of a merciful master. Then we're ready for the role to which he's called us as his new community. So finally, this psalm calls us to be dependent servants pleading for mercy. <clears throat> We're to long for and seek his merciful intervention to heal us and to heal our world. The image of the servant in this psalm is so powerful. Uh, they are expectant to receive grace and mercy. You see the picture of uh, the servants in the room with their master watching his hands, <laughs> watching for the very slightest move of giving the command because they know that that command is going to be good. It's going to be full of mercy. It's going to be a healing touch. It's going to be a restoring uh, call. And they're anxious and waiting attentively for those instructions and for that call. They know they have a good master who's looking out for them, looking out for what is broken and what is needing repair. And they're anxious to see him 
deliver. So what are the practical steps of a dependent servant uh, who is pleading for mercy? First, we wait as servants. We wait for God to act. It is the remedy to that propulsion that wants us to react to contempt and bring about more contempt. We wait, we bring our concerns to Him, and it resists that first impulse uh, to respond with greater contempt. We look to God's prior action before we move for our Master to bring mercy to us and to our world, to our relationships. A couple of uh, little steps to this. First, we tell Him our contempt, our experience of it. We tell him we've had enough. We bring the full weight of what we're experiencing to him, and we cast it on him. He doesn't uh, tell us not to do that. He urges us to do that. This psalm urges us that he's a God who wants to hear the brokenness of our experience, the experience of feeling slighted and being treated unfairly and right, unrightly. We're to bring that to, to the Lord God and pour it, down, uh, pour it down at his feet. Secondly, we want to admit where we are. Uh, we may want to strike back with contempt. We admit that to the Lord, and we bring it before him and ask for relief from the bondage to that cycle of contempt. And we look to the cross to see that Jesus took that contempt, and he paid it for us. He experienced contempt for us so that it might be ended and that newness of life might come. And then we pray for uh, His grace for us and for those that we have the issues with, that He would act, that He would replace hatred with love, He would replace contempt with respect, that He would replace scorn with affirmation. So we first wait as servants. Secondly, we plead as servants. That's the great refrain of this psalm. Have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy on us. We're called to be people of pleading prayer. Even if we don't feel the intensity of a contempt ourselves right now, we join with others who are deeply experiencing that grief and that pain and that agony, and we grieve for what is broken in this world, and we cry out to God. Have mercy, O God. Have mercy. We've had enough of contempt. We plead for the contempt that we see, and we plead for God's intervention. We ask our good master uh, for what none of us can produce. We ask him to do that work of mercy, to bring healing and restoration, to take away pain and take away the sense of shame and scorn and contempt. Plead with God to change hearts, to change what is unjust, to transform our culture. But lastly, we uh, act as servants. When we have waited and when we have pleaded, the next flowing result is action. The fact that we look to Jesus to work to take away contempt doesn't mean that we don't work uh, in this world to, to, to work for justice or to work for the reparation of situations that need curing and healing. We show mercy. We work for justice because God has shown us mercy and he has been just towards us. We work to make things right. And as servants, we look to the hand of our master for his cues, his commands, his calls. And it's so critical at a time like this that we look to him 
in, in the midst of the contempt that we experience, whether it be in our homes, whether it be in our workplaces, whether it be in the public square. We as Jesus followers act like he acted. We seek to understand his heart, his way of dealing with brokenness and sin. We seek to be those full of mercy, full of grace, and full of uh, effort towards justice. Study the pages of the Gospels for how Jesus lived out that, uh, that way of life, how he expressed mercy and grace and follow in his footsteps so that we might be those who minister mercy and reconciliation. So this is our call to be um, following this servant song, to understand that God is a good master, merciful to us, to be those who put ourselves in the position of servants and uh, plead with him for his work of grace in our own hearts, in our world, so that this experience of having a contempt consume us would be replaced by healing, restoration, and value and worth. Let's look to the Lord together as we ask these things. Master and Lord, we have had enough of contempt. We look to you, sovereign Lord, and plead for your mercy. Would you rescue us from our independence from you and draw us into a willing submission to you as freed people, looking to you alone to heal us, to restore us, to take away contempt and replace it with grace and value and worth? Be gracious to take away contempt and replace it with respect and love. We ask all these things through Jesus our Savior. Amen.